Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show. With your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. And good afternoon. This is the Bose Nose Show, and I'm your host, Jay Bozovich, West Lane County Commissioner here in Lane County, Oregon. And we're coming to you from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon. And it's another beautiful Wednesday afternoon here in the Pacific Northwest, which means it's raining. But we like the rain here because It's what keeps the Californians away, mostly. So it's another open line, free for all, everything's fair game, you name it. I don't know what you want to call it, Uh, Bo's Nose Show. You control the topic. So we want you to call in at 646-721-9887. And just press one, and that lets Robin, my call screener, producer extraordinaire, know that you want to get in on the conversation. And you can also email us at talk at krbnradio.net, and uh, we will try and pick those up even between shows if you have a question or something I can address in my next show. But, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more chipper than I was last week. You know, last week I was down with a horrible virus and all that stuff. I don't know how I managed to get the show done. And uh, I was jet lagged from going to Washington, D.C. and back the week before. And we talked a lot about Washington, D.C., but now, you know, board meeting yesterday, we dealt with a lot of heady issues. Uh, I was in Salem all day on Monday, so there's lots to talk about. And probably the big thing that's uh, in the news today and, and being commented a lot on the, the news articles and Facebook and other places is Tobacco 21. And the Board of Commissioners here in Lane County approved raising the eight legal age for purchase and possession and use of tobacco and nicotine products from 18 to 21 in Lane County. And we did that under our powers as the Board of Health which is one of the things that in the state of Oregon, county commissioners also are the board of health for their counties, uh, which gives us a, sort of a wide ranging set of responsibilities and powers. Uh, everything from we're the organization that does all the restaurant inspections. Uh, if you have a restaurant that you have a complaint about or something, you don't call the city that it's in, you call our county health department and they will get somebody out there to inspect it and take a look. As well as we're the people that track communicable disease and all that stuff and worry about, you know, things like measles and, and 
and all that and trying to track those things and foodborne disease and all that good stuff. So uh, lots of responsibilities when it comes to public health. And under one of our responsibilities as charged by the state is we have to have a community health improvement plan and we have to be working towards certain goals that the community has identified. We have to, every three years, we have to update this plan and it involves a whole bunch of community meetings and getting input and stuff and it sets a set of goals that the board adopts. And one of those goals has been uh, preventing tobacco use in our youth, uh, minors. And, you know, we've been kind of chipping around the edges a little bit. We did some things with licensing tobacco outlets so we could have at least a, a small income stream to do some enforcement with of, of sales to minors. But most, um, the, the real thing that we, you know, I've been pushing for when this became an issue, um, and it wasn't banning outdoor smoking in parks, which is something I was against, uh, is the real thing that would have an impact on how many kids actually smoke is to raise the age of smoking up so that their just older peers weren't legally able to purchase tobacco and nicotine products and then give it to, or more likely sell it to, usually at a profit, um, to kids that were not of legal age. Um, and, and it's something that we kind of recognized uh, years ago with alcohol when we moved alcohol back to 21 from 18. And it was definitely recognized as we started legalizing uh, recreational marijuana. That's 21. Because we understand that uh, the kids that are 18, 19, and 20 and, and recently out of high school are more likely to uh, bend to some pressure from younger peers or just to curry favor with younger peers. Like I've never known a 19-year-old guy that wouldn't be willing to um, provide a 17-year-old girl with, with whatever she wants, even if it was illegal. Um, you know, if he thought she was kind of cute. So uh, a lot, one of the largest sources for tobacco and nicotine products for kids that are under 18, minors, people that aren't, you know, old enough to responsibly make a decision around using an addictive uh, product, uh, are friends, siblings, and acquaintances that are 18, 19, and 20. Kind of obvious, kind of by the time people get to be 21 and older, they're far enough removed from high school and, and being under 18. And they're usually kind of like, they might have a car by then, they might have a job, they might even have a wife and risking a, a uh, getting busted for providing a minor with an illegal substance to for a minor. Um, kind of makes them question whether they want to do that. So uh, one of the things I had pushed way back, um, and this starts when we first did our, we're starting to work on our, our community health improvement plan, the first version of it back in 2012 was we really needed to raise the age of purchase and possession for uh, folks up to 21 to be like alcohol. And uh, it really became an issue as vaping came in because 
Now you can't tell the difference in a vaping pen between vaping nicotine or vaping THC derived from marijuana because those vaping products often don't have a scent other than what they intentionally put in it. So you can't tell um, whether somebody is vaping nicotine or THC. So how does, you know, enforcement folks determine as people are vaping that are 18, 19, and 20, whether they're vaping a tobacco-based product or a marijuana-based product. So uh, it kind of makes that a lot more consistent as vaping came into being. So it's something I had pushed for a lot, but yesterday I actually ended up voting against the ordinance. And everyone goes, well, if you're so in favor of this, why'd you vote against it? I had that question come up on the register guard board and my explanation is pretty simple. The other, the other commissioners that the three that supported it chose to remove from the ordinance, a, uh, clause they referred to as a grandfather clause. I like to call it a fairness clause that basically said the day this becomes effective, if you're already 18 on that day, you are going to be legally allowed to continue purchasing tobacco and nicotine products from that day forward. Now, if you turn 18 the day after it became effective, you're going to have to wait till you're 21. You know, because at that point, you know, so basically it was folks that are 18 and above right now that are already addicted to nicotine it's a really powerfully addictive drug. It's more addictive than cocaine. I mean, it, it is, you know, right up there with heroin and, and methamphetamine as far as its addictive power and difficulty to quit. In fact, some people say it's actually easier to quit than heroin. The only drug that's, that's, that's compared to an addictive power is methamphetamine and how difficult it is to actually get yourself off of nicotine. So, you know, for me, those kids that are already addicted and already legally purchasing the product to suddenly say, we're going to make you illegal over the next couple of years until you turn 21, even though you've got an addiction and force you to figure out some black market way to supply that addiction, I thought was just extremely unfair. Uh, for those folks. And that's one of the reasons, you know, without that uh, fairness clause that, that brought those people along and after three years, it'd be back to 20, everybody would have to be 21 in order to purchase because all those people that were 18 on the effective date would be 21. So hopefully, you know, that kind of explains why I voted no, because I kind of felt it wasn't fair to suddenly tell all those people that are 18, 19, and 20 and addicted that they're going to have to engage in criminal activity to continue to feed an addiction that was legal a couple, you know, you know as of today. Of course, our ordinance doesn't take effect for 30 days because um, it gives time for folks to collect signatures and actually refer it to the ballot if somebody wants to do that. Um, and that's kind of the way, no emergency clause on this. <laughs> so that's kind of what's going on with Tobacco 21. And if you want to get in on the conversation, just dial 646-721-9887.
and just press one and that lets Robin, my call screener, know you want to get in on the conversation. So I see a couple people that have dialed into the show. If you want to get in on the conversation, press one and that'll, you know, throw a little question mark up on our, our, our board and we'll get you on the show. So tobacco was a big thing on the, the uh, commissioner's uh, docket this week. We really, uh, you know, it was, it was a, an interesting discussion yesterday because the discussion yesterday was mostly about the, the grandfather clause. And, you know, some of the retailers were complaining because they thought it was going to make it difficult for them to, to sell, which, you know, I find really um, disingenuous because you just had to put one date on the counter and one and put one date, you know, on, on the outside of the register says, if you're not born before April 13th, 1999 on or before you cannot purchase tobacco and they have to keep track of two other dates all the time anyway because there are all sorts of products that aren't legal to your 18 even besides tobacco like lottery tickets you have to be 18 and there's all sorts of products you have to be 21 for like alcohol so if you're the local dairy mart clerk you're already keeping track of two date you know you know, a couple years back, um, and then there's going to be a third date you have to keep track of for the next three years. I didn't think that was a heavy burden to the retailers, so I thought that was kind of a superficial complaint. The other one was from the uh, really the side that would probably like to just make tobacco illegals, the American Cancer Society and some of those folks and tobacco prevention folks, that they're complaining that it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be as immediately impactful if it had to phase in over three years. And it's like, it's been 18 forever. And we know that in three years, it will be 21. And what's interesting is, you know, because we passed this now, it becomes effective in 30 days with the grandfather clause by next September, when the new uh, school year starts, there would be almost no seniors that would legally be able to purchase tobacco in that senior class, which means you basically have removed tobacco and nicotine from the high school that year. The following year, it's going to be all the freshmen in college so that there won't even be friends that were a year up that you could probably convince to, to, to do that. And the following year, it's going to be the sophomores. And then from then, it'll be just like alcohol and tobacco where it's the, the juniors and on up. So, you know, those were the two arguments against the grandfather clause. And I didn't think it, either of them were, were really strong arguments. And it, and it bothered me that um, the commissioners, you know, were either so hardline anti-tobacco, which I would describe two of the commissioners that voted yes, and one of the commissioners that supported removing the, uh, the, the clause was more about trying to, to support the retail side of it and listening to the retailers. Um, a little disappointed in him. Uh, the other two, I, I kind of knew were going to always be against having any sort of grandfathering. They're 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 tobacco Nazis uh, when it comes down to it. But so that's all about tobacco. So if you have any questions or comments on tobacco, again, just give me a call at six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven and press one, and that lets Robin know you want to get in on the conversation. There are a couple other things we talked about yesterday, and we could talk about. 
the old Hazeldale Quarry site in uh, on what they refer to as TV Hill, outside right on the edge of Oak Ridge, uh, way up on the western or eastern edge of Lane County. I'm sorry, um, up there in the Cascades, uh, that we approved the uh, adding of that site as a significant uh, mineral resource site in our rural comprehensive plan. Basically, it's considered a, a land use action or zone change, but it's uh, just adding it to our inventory. It doesn't actually give a permit for the quarry to operate. They still have to go through all sorts of hoops with uh, the State Department of Geolo Geology and Mines. I think that's what DOGAMI stands for. Um, and, uh, you know, they'll have to go through more uh, to, to even operate. I'm not even sure the people that got this this added to the inventory, if that's their end goal to operate or not. I think they're putting it in their back pocket as an investment for the future. Um, but that was pretty controversial because there was, you know, like anything, you're gonna, you, if you're gonna open a new gravel mine somewhere, everyone's concerned about noise and dust and how's it gonna look and is there gonna be truck traffic on my street? and all the fear of change that comes out from the neighbors. Um, and there were some pretty unhappy people about the whole thing um, yesterday afternoon at, at in Harris Hall. But it's one of those things, uh, you know, I try and explain to people, when the Board of Commissioners is dealing with land use, um, we're dealing with it under Oregon's Senate Bill 100, dates back um, quite a ways. And we have to adhere to the state um, statewide land use planning goals and all of our land use code and um, our rural comprehensive plan, all that has to be approved by the state um, uh, Department of Land Conservation and Development. And uh, we operate under state statute when we're operating in the land use arena and we have laying code that reflects state statute. And as we're going to make decisions on land use, uh, we are actually functioning in, in what's known as a quasi-judicial role. So we're actually, it's the one time commissioner, at least it, our county commissioners, there are other counties where they actually do sit as, as county judges. But in our county, as a home rule chartered county, it's the one time the Board of Commissioners actually sits like a panel of jurists. Uh, we're acting like judges. And what we have in front of us is a decision that we have to base our decision on those statutes and codes that apply and the criteria that apply to that specific decision as defined in those statutes and codes. And we can't bring in new criteria from outside because that would basically make whatever, if we based our decision on that, it'd be easily appealable by whichever party felt it was a wrong decision. And at the same time, we can only make our decision based on the evidence presented to us in the official record of decision. So we can't go out and do our own research on something and make our, our decision based on that evidence. And we also can't um, use evidence that came from 
somewhere outside after the record was closed or, you know, has no applicability to the decision. Yeah, so it's a very structured sort of decision making process. And it's often difficult for folks on the outside that are upset that there might be a gravel mine near them to understand the constraints in which we're making our decision, which is we have to make it on only those criteria that are prescribed in the laws. And we can only make it based on what's in the record. And, and in this particular case, there are certain criteria that have to be met. Like one of the first tests is, is there a significant aggregate resource available at that site? And the applicant has, has the burden of proof and presents information. He's got, you know, where they've done borings and their geologist reports and the, <laughs> about the volume of, of rock that's beneath the soil on this site and also the quality of the rock. You know, they test it for hardness and all that stuff and whether it's going to be suitable building material. And the evidence presented by the applicant far exceeded the criteria for what they call a significant resource. I think you have to have something like 2 million cubic feet of usable rock, and he was at like the 20 million range. And even the applicant, who was kind of arguing with that, came up with a figure of 8 million. So, I mean, the, the opponents came up with 8 million. So it was, there was no question there's a significant aggregate resource present on the site. Then you get into the secondary criteria is, can it be accessed with while minimizing the impacts to what they call the impact zone, which is defined as 1,500 feet from the mining site? So they, they and some of, and the things, there's specific things they look at impact of dust, noise, traffic, you know, various things, you know, water um, runoff. <laughs> and we go through all that criteria. And if the applicant shows that it's, that it's feasible to minimize those impacts, um, basically, we have no choice but to approve the application, which is what it came down to. And, and the approval contains a whole bunch of, of um, conditions of that approval that reflect all those things that the applicant said that would minimize the impacts. If he said that, you know, the, that the dust could be minimized by having a wheel wash for the trucks and, and watering the roads internally on the site, there's a condition that says you shall have a wheel wash and you shall water the roads on site. Um, so that's kind of the way those decisions go. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I'm still, still recovering, slight hack here. Um, it, four of us came to the conclusion that the, uh, based on the applicable criteria and the record, there was, you know, there was uh, reason to believe that, that you know, the, that we should amend our uh, Goal 5 resource inventory to include this, this, this aggregate mineral site. And uh, really what we came to yesterday was a decision on zoning. Uh, some people are pretty upset. There were some claims that there might be Indian artifacts on the site and all that stuff. Um, unfortunately, those claims aren't part of the criteria that we had, nor was there you know, evidence entered into the record that clearly showed there was some significant resource site 
um, as qualified by the criteria of a significant archaeological resource site. Beyond that, state law, anytime you're excavating in the state of Oregon, if you come across an artifact, you are required to stop immediately and call the state. And, and they do an investigation and in, in in an archaeological dig there and all that stuff. We saw it happen with Whole Foods downtown recently where they brought the whole damn construction site to a screeching halt because they thought they had uncovered an artifact. Um, we've seen it in other places. When they're building Research Stadium recently, same thing, brought the whole shooting max to a screaming halt. If you don't do that, the penalties for violating that part of the state law on archaeological sites are astronomical. I mean, so it's something people don't do. So there are protections against that ultimately if there does turn out to be any sort of artifacts on the site. There's fairly good evidence that the artifacts are actually on a, on a home site that's even outside the 1,500-foot buffer. Um, but that's beside the point. So a couple controversial things we dealt with yesterday, tobacco, quarry sites. So why didn't we just talk about something even more controversial? We started talking about sanctuary status with our sheriff and our district attorney. So that was an interesting conversation. And uh, the sheriff did a good portion of the talking because the uh, sheriff's association um, has actually carefully looked into um, the, the executive orders from the president and how they impact us versus ORS 181A820, which is a 1987 law, so that's 30 years ago, um, that the state passed that basically says uh, local governments are not allowed to um, expend resources enforcing immigration law other than once somebody's you know in the criminal you know been picked up and involved in the criminal uh, justice system you know arrested or whatever that that there there can be communication between <laughs> immigration customs and enforcement and local law enforcement uh, to you know, to let them know the person's been picked up and they can, but we can't hold people beyond their normal release date for um, ICE because uh, there's actually been court decisions that say that's not legal and, and, and violates those folks' Fourth Amendment um, rights. So uh, it was a very interesting conversation about just what we can do uh, and, and also the fact that local law enforcement, whether you're <laughs> a Eugene police officer, Junction City, uh, Oregon State Trooper, or a sheriff's deputy, you cannot um, enforce federal law because you're not, um, you're not licensed to do so, so to speak. You haven't been certified and, uh, you know, placed in, in, in a position to actually enforce federal law. Just as we don't want, you know, somebody from the FBI or uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms issuing uh, speeding tickets or um, 
citing somebody for zoning infractions. Yeah, they're not licensed to do local law enforcement. Uh, so it was an interesting discussion, you know, because there's a lot of, you know, fear on one side and, and a lot of misunderstanding of what the state's actual status is on, on, on another side and even misunderstanding about exactly what the executive orders say. And what's interesting is the really the only basis for uh, in the executive order on on internal immigration, not the external one on on the, you know, what has been referred to as the Muslim ban or however you want to talk about it, the temporary halt to refugees and everything else that's external. There's two two uh, executive orders on immigration, actually three. One was issued a second time, um, but the internal one you know, talks about um, sanctuary status uh, and and possibly pulling federal funds from places that are considered sanctuary. The basis for doing so is based on Title Eight, Section 1337 of Federal Code, U.S. Code, which really only talks about you can't restrict the communication. So the fact that state law allows law enforcement once somebody's in, you know been in contact with law enforcement to communicate with ICE and ICE to communicate back doesn't actually restrict and violate that portion of the U.S. Code. So under the, the that portion that law actually doesn't qualify in, under the executive order as making us a sanctuary state. Um, so I don't think we'll be in violation to where we'll actually endanger federal funds. Now, I have a somewhat of a question about what the city of Eugene did, because I haven't had a chance to read what they passed uh, Monday night. But one of the things they had in there was something about expending local resources for any kind of communi you know, communication of somebody's uh, immigration status sounds like it, even though the word sanctuary wasn't used in the ordinance, it sounds like it directly violates the part of the executive order on that Title VIII, Section 1337 that talks about communications. Um, so it'll be, it'll be um, interesting to see how, how that plays out. There's still a lot of things even about the threat to pull federal funds and how much that might actually violate the 10th amendment um, and, and the ability for states to, you know, govern themselves, et cetera. So it was an interesting discussion on sanctuary. So throwing some red meat out there, tobacco 21, uh, quarry mining sites and sanctuary status. If you want to get in on the conversation, just dial us at 646-721-9887. And just press one, and that lets Robin, our call screener, know that you want to get in on the conversation. So if you're one of those folks that's listening over the phone and you want to get in on the conversation, just you know, take a moment and, and press one on your phone, and, and, and that'll let us know you want to get, get in on the conversation. We'll get you here. Because today is, an, is basically a free-for-all day, and I really you know, want you to call in. This is really your show. I do the Bo's Nose Show so that folks have an opportunity to talk to an elected official, basically one-on-one. -on -one. If you were to call in right now, no one's in, in, in the queue, I'd get you right on. 
you get to ask your question. We have a conversation. I really don't have, you know, and and we can have an extended conversation here with other people listening in. True, but they'll get to learn because you, you never know. You ask the question that ten other people probably wanted an answer to, and uh, everybody gets to learn something. And if there's something you want to tell me, you know, I'm always interested to hear because you know one of the things you always worry about as an elected official is eventually if you're in office long enough getting removed from the electorate enough that you don't really see things the way the folks see them so i'm I'm always looking for people to call in and and maybe not so much ask a question but just give me an opinion on something or even you know have you have an idea of something the county might do in the future or something we should stop doing so please feel free give me a call at 646 721-9887. Again, just press one that lets Robin know you want to get in on the conversation. Or you can email us and, and you can email us between shows even at talk at krbnradio.net. And uh, we'll pick that up and try and address it in our next show. So I mentioned at the top of the show that I also spent all day Monday in Salem. And Salem's always an interesting place to be for a while. It kind of was like being in Washington, D.C. Um, it's almost surreal. I kind of imagine some people might walk into the county building and feel that way. Um, but that marble nut house that looks like a bowling trophy um, <laughs> is an interesting place. And boy, are they coming up with all sorts of interesting things to uh, um, really kind of play around with with what's happening uh, in the state. And I, you know, trying to track that stuff is just a chore and a half in itself. Uh, I sit on a couple committees uh, for the Association of Oregon Counties. In fact, I chair, co-chair the Public Safety Committee. So we get to monitor a lot of what, what the legislature's doing and budgets and all that stuff. And uh, I tell you, it, it, you know, it's frustrating in some ways because as a county commissioner, we have a kind of a dual role. We do legislation, but we also have a little bit of executive authority. So we can do a lot more as commissioners to control the cost of on the expense side of our budget um, than legislators can do. They can just write law. They can't actually negotiate with a, um, a union. Uh, they can't actually um, reorganize the department to eliminate middle management positions um, or streamline, you know, processes. They basically have no control over it. That all falls to the executive branch of the government and the governor's office. And as we look at this huge deficit they have, you know, as a percentage of the debt of their budget, it's nowhere close to what we've actually had to cut in Lane County in real dollars, not in you know, what I'd like to have to maintain current level of services, we've actually had huge drops in our budget in real dollars from where we were revenue-wise to, to where we are today because of the ending of the Secure Rural Schools Act and the Federal Forest um, Timber Harvest Replacement Payments. Um, we've had a really significant cut in our revenues at Lane County. So we've had to do all sorts of things on the expense side to balance our budget that we haven't seen the state do. But, you know, some of the things they're doing in the state budget just make almost no sense. And I spent 
last Friday up in Junction City, touring the uh, state hospital there with State Senator uh, James Manning, uh, talking with him about why it was important to keep that place open. The governor's budget actually proposed closing it. It just opened two years ago. The state spent $77 million on the building and site alone, let alone the almost $100 million or more they spent in infrastructure in Junction City, improving the water system, the streets, the sewers, storm drainage, you name it, to get that site ready before the, the site work was done, which was you know almost 70 some million. But that, that secure um, medical, mental health treatment facility is a really key piece of the whole mental health puzzle. And particularly because it takes folks that are you know, basically guilty except for insanity. Uh, so they have a lot of folks that are actually what they call forensic patients that if they ever kind of got cured, they'd end up back in prison or something um, <laughs> and dealt with through um, the prison system. And then they also deal with folks that are committed uh, civilly. Um, and the really the folks that are basically in eminent danger to themselves or society in some way that haven't committed a crime. Uh, and it's, you know, moving some of those people in there. They also get a lot of folks referred to them from county jails and also prisons that are um, kind of awaiting sentencing where they're trying to determine if that person is, is capable in assisting in their defense. Um, do they need to get stabilized and all that? So there's, there's another set of people that go into that system, that secure bed treatment system. Uh, and it's a really key component because when it was not functioning back in in prior to about 2013, they changed some of the rules on intake and 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 um, and 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 uh, getting people out of the system faster of the state hospital back in 2013. That helped a lot. And when 2015, the new hospital opened, it helped even more. But prior to 2013, there was actually a backlog waiting list of trying to get people into the state hospital system. So those folks that you know should have been in a secure bed mental health facility were ending up sitting in our local hospital acute care wings like the Johnson unit at Sacred Heart um, downtown there in Eugene and their, their old downtown campus. Uh, and that that unit was only meant to hold people from seven to 21 days. And they were ending up with people there for 90 days. And of course that meant that there were no beds available in that acute care for people that were really just having an acute incidences where they just needed to be in a, in, in a, in a hospital care situation until they, they could be stabilized. Those people ended up in rooms in the emergency room, or they ended up in the local County jail. And it bumped on down and stuff like that. And there were folks that really should have been in the state hospital system that actually made a referral up there, but didn't get in there because of the, the backlog. And one of those people was a woman named Cheryl Kidd. And if folks don't recognize that name, they should recognize the name of Officer Chris Kilcullen. She was the woman that shot Chris Kilcullen. She should have been in the state mental health system, but that backlog at the highest level pushed on down, kept her out of the system and on the street, and ultimately ended up with the death of a, of a police officer and a really fine person. 
So it's critical that that Junction City facility stay open, but it's amazing how um, you hear these, you know, folks up and saying, well, the, the governor had to make some tough decisions on the budget. It's like, yeah, I've had to make tough decisions on the budget. And you know what? You know, we cut our own compensation. We cut our office, you know, budgets. We renegotiated our health insurance with our unions to get make it cheaper. You know, it, we, you know, I'm not hearing any of that at the state level. Instead, they're going to do things like cut a facility uh, and drop us down below the number. Yeah, we're not even at the number of beds prior to Junction City opening because they closed two other facilities when they opened Junction City. Um, and it's only about halfway opened, about, you know, almost a little past halfway, about 60% open. So uh, it's not even fully open. They're going to close it. Throw away all that investment in the capital of opening it. And ultimately, what's going to happen is those folks are going to end up, you know, in in the you know public safety system, accused of crimes due to their their mental health, you know, behavioral crimes due to their mental health, possibly against people, which makes it a person crime, which is going to end up sending them to prison and uh, putting them in, in a uh, you know in a place where the the, the States right now on the edge of having to build a new women's prison, you know, which is going to be a $53 million capital, no, $150 million capital investment and a $53 million a year to operate. So it's like, why are you going to close down a system that might actually prevent you having to open a new prison? You know, the, the, the cognitive dissonance that goes on sometimes up there in Salem just is frustrating as a county commissioner where we have a little bit more control over the whole picture. I sure like being one of five instead of one of 90. Um, <laughs> for those of you that wonder why I won't run for state office. <laughs> um, but, you know, up there in Salem, you know, the, I could go on for, for a better part of an hour about all the various uh, things that are floating around. Um, I, I, you know, just to get a little sidetracked, um, I sit on the governance committee for AOC, which deals with a lot of esoteric things because governance covers a lot of territory. But we deal with everything from assessment and taxation things to um, <coughs> intergovernmental agreements to uh, the, the laws behind intergovernmental agreements uh, to franchise agreements in cities and 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 all sorts of uh, various things. One of the things we deal with, though, is a lot of liability um, uh, law, how it impacts counties and, and their expenses and operations. And there's something in the state of Oregon that was passed um, several years back and, and, and has been updated once, in, I think the last time in 1994, called recreational immunity. And it allows folks that have property where people might recreate to allow the public onto it and um, basically <laughs> make the owners of that property immune. If somebody chooses to recreate on that property and then gets injured while they're recreating, to not be able to just turn around and sue the owner. And you know what it did was it allowed a lot of private land to be open for hunting. Think you know Weyerhaeuser and, and some of the large forest owners, and it also allowed 
you know, counties and cities to have parks open to the public without worrying about getting sued every other day when if somebody tripped over a crack in the sidewalk and skinned their knee. Um, unfortunately, um, that the recreational immunity got, got blown up by a court case up in the Portland area where a woman stepped in a hole where some jerk removed the barricade that, that protected the hole and she was jogging barely early in the morning. Somebody stole the barricade stuff. You know, yeah, who knows where they ended up putting it? Some friend's front lawn, I guess. Um, woman stepped in a hole, broke her leg badly, uh, was a poster child for a defense attorney because she was uh, legally blind and was out jogging early in the morning um, on a path she always used. And, and it, was, it was a hole dug to repair a sprinkler head and they needed to get parts overnight and they barricaded the hole up. But, you know, the claim was the barricading should have been more, more permanent and more protective. And, and it was the employees that erected the barricade that were at fault and they sued the employees, not the owner, which was the city of Portland. Um, and of course, um, as a public entity, if your employees were operating within legally within the confines of their job and not not doing something illegally, you have a duty to represent and and indemnify those employees. Yeah, it, it's um, now if an employee chooses to like embezzle funds, you have no duty to defend them because they weren't operating within their duties. But you know. Doing a repair on a sprinkler head was part of the duties of those parks maintenance, you know, folks that they sued. So the city of Portland, you know, has to represent them and ultimately pay any claim against that. But they were trying to, and they successfully got the court to rule that they could sue the employees and that, you know, that, you know, ultimately won the case that basically blew a hole in what's called recreational immunity. There's bills up there to try and fix that. But of course, the Oregon Trial Lawyers Association, i.e. defense attorneys and um, uh, ambulance chasers, so to speak, uh, really don't like want us to repair it and have actually proposed, you know, counter bills that would actually explode recreational immunity completely. And it's all in the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is uh, Senator Floyd Prasonsky um, and I just it it it's scary that what might happen there because you know there's talk about oh well we'll fix the employee thing but we're going to also add something that says you have to you know that you can't um, have gross negligence involved which means we actually have to defend whether or not we had gross negligence which means we we still would end up you know go, going through depositions uh, getting into court trying to you know defend that portion of it and large cost to the the property owners. If this recreational immunity thing doesn't get fixed in this legislature, you may see the end of of warehouser and any private entities allowing hunting on their property. You may see the end of them allowing, you know, RVs. I mean, you know, like um, uh, four wheeling and anything back on forest roads. You're going to see gates go up all over the place. You're going to see park systems close various parts that they can't guarantee that they can keep the maintenance up to the level they won't get sued. 
So a system like ours where we're struggling to keep up with our maintenance, or you might have seen the front page article in the Eugene Cash Register Guard this morning about the city's park system not being able to maintain their parks. If we don't have recreational immunity, you may not see those parks stay open. So it just amazes me that that folks up there you know, are listening to the trial lawyers who I guess are writing big checks to campaigns of some of those folks, and they tend to write most of their checks to the Democrat caucus, um, and they're in the majority there, that they're, they just don't get the impact this is going to have if they don't fix this. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you, there's a presumption on the person that chooses to go and hunt on private property that they understand the inherent dangers of hunting on a property, no different than their inherent dangers in skiing at a ski resort. You know, and you can't just turn around and sue the ski resort if you break your leg while skiing. Um, but if they screw around with the recreational immunity laws in the state, you might be able to, and you may see places like Hoodoo and Bachelor close. So, um, important issue, esoteric takes a long time to explain to people, but that's the kind of craziness you have to track as a commissioner because it really impacts your ability to operate your, your local government. What happens in Salem matters. And, and uh, it's one of the reasons why I spend so much time in Salem. So again, this is a free-for-all day on the Bo's Nose Show, and I'd like to get in on the conversation. So give us a call at 646-721-9887 and just press one and that, you know, lets me know you want to get in on the conversation and uh, Robin, our call screener will pick up and, uh, you know, we can have a conversation because really this show is for you to ask any questions. Uh, again, this is the Bo's Nose Show and the number is 646-721-9887 and press one. So, um, it oh, looks like we actually have somebody that has a question. So I'm going to jump straight to you, Cold. Are you there, caller? Hello, Jay. This is Nolan. I'm wondering if you hey, could Nolan, give us doing? an update. I'm doing great. Um, I'm interested, as you've seen in some of my emails, about the veteran the veterans group that's opened up in the... Yeah. Can you tell me yeah, the, the the, the, you're yeah, from the commissioner's No Oh shoot. No one no one is a friend of mine that lives out in um the Lorraine area, and it's notorious for being a cell phone desert. Um, so, and that looked like a cell phone number, so I probably lost him that way. But Nolan, uh, if you want to go back and listen to the podcast on this, so I can answer, I, I kind of got what you're sort of getting at, which was you're asking about the veterans' legacy uh, folks that have. Uh, put in for a long-term lease of our old forest work camp and they're revamping it right now. And in fact, I think they're going to start having open houses on Saturdays out there. Um, and it's a really great thing. I wish them a lot of success. I was a little skeptical because they were 
a brand new 501c3 and, and uh, an organization that never operated a um, treatment facility before or even had experience in treating veterans. But they've actually really done a lot of organizational work since they uh, agreed to the lease uh, about six months ago. And I wish them all the success in the world because I think actually that site will be great, particularly for folks with PTSD. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's quiet. It's secluded. Um, there, you know, it will be a nice place maybe for some of those folks to get back on their feet and recover. Um, and, you know, I'm looking forward um, to them being successful out there and, uh, and I hope it will actually be a little bit of a boon to the town of Lorraine because the closest place to come and get any sort of snacks, groceries, or whatever, and the closest place to get some employees from maybe for, like, maintenance of facilities and whatever else is going to be that town of Lorraine. Um, so hopefully it will be a little bit of a boon to, to you guys out there in the Lorraine Valley. And, um, you know, it's a really – really cool thing. I mean, Lane County is, is really got a great, um, is doing great things for veterans in general. Uh, we had our operation 365 where we tried to house 365 veterans in, in a year. And we actually hit 405 veterans in that effort. Um, and, uh, yeah, no one's messaging me on Facebook to say, sorry, it got cut off. <laughs> <laughs> I'll message him back after the show and let him know that I tried to answer his question without knowing what it was. But, you know, we, we do a lot for veterans. Uh, we have some of the best veteran service officers um, in the state, uh, in the Lane County government. It's a function that some people don't realize that our county government does, but we have a veteran service office where if you're a veteran and you're trying to get benefits or you're trying to get your benefits fixed or you're having a problem with the VA, whatever it is, we've got guys trained and have dealt with the red tape of the veterans department for so long and are so successful at doing it that Lane County actually leads the state of Oregon in total dollar benefits coming to our county from the veterans department. Even though we don't have the largest number of veterans in the in the state per county. In fact, we're far from the top county po veteran population-wise, but we are the number one county on dollar benefits per year. And it's in the in millions and millions of dollars of benefits that we get, hundreds of millions. So it's, you know, that, that come into veterans in this county because of the help of our veteran services officer. And because of organizations like St. Vincent de Paul and this Veterans Legacy Group, you know, we're, we're just, you know, it's, we're doing everything we can here in Lane County to honor our veterans and make sure that um, they're successful returning back to uh, society. And, uh, you know, I truly appreciate them. I'm from an age group where I didn't get to serve. Uh, Turned 18 in December of 1975. Folks remember Saigon fell during the summer of 1975. And those were the, you know, shortly thereafter, Jimmy Carter became our president. And he was doing the reduction in force. So a career in the military wasn't really a great thing at that time. And I'm actually in a small age group 
where um, you know you 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 didn't get a draft card. My two older brothers have draft cards, and my younger brother had to register for the draft, but I never had either. So, um, but I really appreciate our veterans. I think Lane County does a great job doing them. Hey, Nolan, do we have you back on a good enough connection? Hello there. Yep. Thank you for answering the question. Yeah. Did I answer it pretty well, or did did you get to hear any of that? Yeah, I, I, I caught the tail end of it. I, I was mainly just interested from the a commissioner's point of view what 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 they saw developing out, out out at the out at the former work camp. Yeah, and I and I was saying I think you know at first I was a little nervous about the Veterans Legacy Group because they were such a new group um, uh, and hadn't actually done any um, run a treatment facility before, but I think they're you know. Some of the folks involved in it are great organizers. Um, you know, the, the former chief deputy is heavily involved in it uh, of Lane County. Uh, Mark Oberly, who worked at uh, Eugene Water and Electric Board when I worked at Eugene Water and Electric Board, I know him very well. And this is the kind, this is the kind of guy that um, was very big in the Boy Scouts organization for a long time. And I can't tell you how many Eagle Scouts. Um, have their Eagle Scout because of Mark Overly, um, and you know he's a supreme organizer too. And and those two guys have just and, and the other folks involved are getting you know getting Yeoman's work done. And I think it's going to be a successful facility. And I was saying that that is a great site for dealing with people with uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. It's isolated. It's quiet. Um, it's going to be. A great site, and I was also mentioning how I felt it was going to be a boon to the town of Lorraine, because you guys are the closest spot to, to grab something to eat, or uh, actually the closest spot to get some employees from for, say, like maintenance and, and other things that might have to happen happen out there. So it might actually have some economic impact for the town of Lorraine. Yeah, and that's one of the things I'm very hopeful for is is to get anything going in Lorraine. I, I think it'll be a great benefit. So I. Uh, th thank you for answering the question. I, I sure appreciate what you're doing for us as a commissioner. It's just really fun to watch. All right. Thank you, Nolan. And thanks for the call. Take care. And, I, and I appreciate you being willing to come on the air. Yep. Take care. So, thank you. So we got about you know a minute and a half left here on the show. Um, and I did get the for veterans. And uh, Robin, did you have something you want to get in before we go? No, uh, just to remind everybody to uh, follow us on Facebook. You know, give us a like and uh, um, and send us an email. Talk at CaribbeanRadio.net. Great, and uh, and uh, thank you for that reminder because it is it is important if you can give it, get a chance. Um, like our Facebook page, radio, and you'll find you know put that in the search there. And that will uh, bring us up uh, on Facebook. And also, get a chance to like my commissioner's page. Uh, uh, you know, if you put in Jay Bozovich Lane County, you'll you'll find my commissioner's page, or Jay Bozovich County Commissioner. Um, comes up a bunch of different ways. West Lane County Commissioner, you can find it. And uh, like my page too, because uh, that means you'll you'll start seeing some of my feed on your Facebook page. 
I like to try and put stuff out there that's informational from my county uh, commissioner's Facebook side. If you want to see pictures of my poodles, friend me on Facebook. It's my personal page, and you'll get to see all my personal stuff, like pictures of my garden, cat, ducks. But that's about it for the Bo's Nose Show today. So thank you for listening, and we'll be talking to you next week from the Bo's Nose Show. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.